Open finance could define the future of financial services. That's why 11FS and Plaid have joined forces to create a report exploring it in greater depth. We scrutinize the lessons learned from open banking and we outline key policy considerations of open finance's implementation. We also consider its impact on financial services providers and the potential benefits to consumers. You can download the report for free at bit.ly forward slash open finance 2020. That's bit.ly forward slash O-P-E-N-F-I-N-A-N-C-E 2020. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you, is now a good time to start a challenger bank as Vivid Money launches in Germany? Marcus shuts to new UK clients. And fintech in the MENA region is hotting up as Islamic finance startup Wahid raises $25 million to grow its Saudi Arabia hub. All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 435 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Ross Gallagher. How are you doing today, Ross? I'm really well, Sarah. Thank you. It's good to see you. I know. I feel like I haven't seen you in literally months. It's probably true. It's probably been months since I've seen you. <laughs> We're just going to have to make do with this virtual setting rather than actually inhabiting the same space. Yeah, it's it's very, very strange. Um, but sadly, this is now the new normal. Um, and with that in mind, we are joined remotely by some awesome guests, uh, all of whom are making their FinTech Insider News debuts. Uh, we have Sanjay Gupta, VP and Global Head of Products and Corporate Development at MyTech US. Welcome to the show, Sanjay. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're also joined by Rachel Pollard, Chief Growth Officer at Starling. How are you doing today, Rachel? Hi, I'm really good, thanks. Thank you very much for coming along. And last but by no means least, we have AJ Suominen, CEO of Holvi. How are you today, AJ? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you so much for letting me call you AJ and not butcher your first name, um, as my Finnish is definitely subpar. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for joining us. Let's get started. So the first story today is that Vivid Money has launched a digital banking service in Germany. Uh, we got the story from TechEU. Um, Vivid Money, a Berlin-based digital banking service backed by TCS, which also runs Russian digital bank Tinkoff, has launched in partnership with Solaris Bank and Visa. It already has 130 employees, and the company claims to be the first mobile-first full-service banking solution that offers cashback programs, sub-accounts in foreign currencies, um, and eventually it plans to offer investment products all in one app. Uh, Vivid is working with Solaris Bank, which provides fully licensed banking as a service platform through which Vivid operates. Um, and through Visa, Vivid provides users with an anonymized metal debit card. Uh, to find out more, we spoke to Alexander Emeshev, co-founder of Vivid Money. Let's hear from him now. We started Vivid Money before it all happens. But during these pandemic times, we realized that it becomes even more important for customers. Everyone wants to feel on the safe side. And it becomes extremely important to manage your money in a smart way. That is why we provide this cashback program for every spending. We introduce stock rewards to let you grow your money. And we allow customers to avoid fees on exchanging money and withdrawing at ATMs. We started with Visa and Salatis Bank as a partners because that's a great partners to start a fintech company in Europe. Salatis Bank and providing us banking infrastructure, and the, which is super flexible in terms of implementation. And what is most important, they move fast. 
it wasn't be, wouldn't be possible to build so cool innovative features without their help. Visa was extremely supportive during the whole journey of our launch, and we are super proud of having them as a partner. Well, we started with Germany because that's a huge market for saving and investment products. You know, Germans love to save. It is a good city to start with, Berlin. Uh, we have our partner, Salata Bank, uh, located in Berlin. So that was an obvious choice. Our plan that in two years' time, we want to be present in every European country and provide our services to all customers across the whole Europe. Um, so what do we think of this? I mean, uh, I guess there's a couple of obvious questions. Um, is now really a good time to be launching a challenger bank? I mean, obviously, they were, this was planned um, a long time before, before the pandemic hit, or I would imagine so. If it wasn't, then they are moving even quicker than I've ever seen a bank launch. Um, the other thing is, I think, to consider about perhaps Germany as a first market. Um, I think the two are possibly linked. You know, obviously, Germany does have um, a very strong challenger bank in N26, which has done very well at capturing the the market there for people who are early adopters, shall we say, of these services. On the other hand, the Germans, as, they, as he said, love to save. They also love cash. Um, so, you know, is there room for them to grow? And I guess the third thing to consider with perhaps the pandemic lens is that Germany seems to have done pretty, not pretty well out of the pandemic. That's very poor language, Sarah. But it has been um, less badly affected economically than perhaps some other countries in Europe. So uh, maybe maybe that does make it a good starting point. Um, those are just some food for thought. You, you guys may have completely other takes on this. Uh, who wants to go first? Rachel, please. Um, so, yeah, I think a couple of things actually about this. I think the first thing is actually now maybe actually quite a good time um, to launch a challenger bank with a very specific proposition. I get that um, Vivid Money have a number of uh, products they're launching with straight out of the gate, but actually the savings, um, the cashback piece in, in particular for me is very interesting. And I think in the current climate, certainly from a marketing perspective, if you can launch with something that has such a specific customer value, customers can go, I get it, I get why right now, I can take advantage of this product. Actually, you might find faster growth in the current climate if you can offer something that's genuinely, tangibly valuable right now. Um, obviously, it's, you know, um, they need to build a brand, they need to get the customer base set. But like you say, with Germany, they've already got N26 operating in that market. So potentially, you could argue that the kind of knowledge of you know, startup banks um, uh, is already there. So perhaps they can acquire some of those early adopters around 26 over to their ranks rather than having to do all the heavy lifting. Really interesting. Yeah, that, that, that's a very, um, it's always an interesting take, isn't it? The idea of like neobanks coming along and poaching other neobanks customers. We talk a lot about the idea of neobanks poaching, you know, traditional banks customers, but um, obviously they can, they can poach from each other as well. Um, Ross, I saw your hand, but I will go around the full group. Yeah, I think I would um I would probably reiterate Rachel's point actually. I think of course there's going to be challenges, you know, this 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 covid crisis, how could there not be? Um but I, I think the, the key point here is around timing. I think um there's actually a number of things for me that probably play to Vivid Money's um advantage here. I think um we've we've talked about how behavior is is sort of shifting in germany I, I i think they're on top of that i think behavior is is shifting rapidly actually away from cash and um towards digital so there's a there's a growth opportunity there but i think actually there's going to be um a sort of economic impact in fact we're probably seeing it already off the back of covid 
And although Germany has been um, probably fared better, Sarah, to your point, than um, than other countries, I think what's going to happen is people's personal finances are going to increasingly be squeezed. And I think actually what we'll see off the back of that is people looking for smarter ways to manage their personal finances. Um, I think, look, the, the COVID situation is, is absolutely going to produce winners and losers, but the timing aspect and just a couple of, of things like that um, I think suggests to me that these guys might actually have have luck on their side in that sense. I think, you know, um, Rachel, you made the point as well that actually they're slightly later to market. And I think you're right that in a strange way, that may well play in their favor. Yes, because obviously um, consumer expectations, I think, are normalized towards fintech. But I think they've also looked at a number of the features that have been launched by other digital challengers um, and, and seen what's landed well with consumers. And they're also features that I think will resonate well with consumers in the sort of economic situation. So fee-free currency withdrawals, for example, cashback programs, so getting more bang for your buck. And I think you're right about the investment products as well, especially in the face of record low interest rates. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting your point there as well. Um, you know that, uh, that this kind of idea of being a fast follower, perhaps. You know, it, I think the, the story that's always brought up here is that Apple very rarely does things first, but when it does something, it's damn sure it's the right thing to do. Um, Sanjay, did you want to add anything to that? Sure. I mean, I think it's great that they're launching this uh, this new bank in Germany. If you look at Italy, right? Italy just launched one as well. It's called Buddy Bank. And here in the U.S., we had a bank called Axios, which actually is affiliated with with N26. So <clears throat> I think it's a great time to be launching a new product like this. What's surprising to me, though, is if you look at the regulatory environment in Germany, onboarding is a very, very difficult process in terms of getting new customers onboarded. So you have to go through not like let's say if you're in Italy or if you're in Netherlands, you can onboard a person pretty fast by just ha- having them provide their ID and a selfie and you're onboarded. But in Germany, it requires that you have to have a physical person behind that onboarding experience. And typically, it takes anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes to onboard a, a new a new, a new, new person. So I think from that perspective, it's kind of surprising that they're starting there. But obviously, given you know the funding that N26 received, and they're backed by MasterCard, they raised close to about $700 million last year. So it's not surprising that, that people are jumping into this market. Uh, I think it's a great time. Yeah, no, no, it's interesting. And I, I believe in Germany as well, you say the physical thing, but you also, from what I, I last read, that may have changed, that you also have to go through a video appointment with somebody who checks your ID, but you have to get the appointment, which is just as bad as getting an appointment at a branch in the first place. Um, AJ, did you want to, to add to that? Yeah, uh, we've been in Germany since since 2016, running our, our um, micro-business banking there. And, uh, and I have to say that the market has developed quite a bit during that time, um, it is not still a card economy by any means. They, they still are very cash-based, but it is changing, and I'm sure that COVID will help it change. Um, and the the other thing that uh, that I think in terms of the German market is that while N26 has done a lot to to raise the awareness of digital banks, I think that it is also quite a traditional market in terms of uh, of the traditional banks still dominating and uh, and so it i think vivid money needs to needs to find ways to to scale fast and uh, and, and and really uh, get get to a larger customer base um, and it's 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 probably going to be 
relatively difficult uh, in in the in the German market right now in the COVID situation where people are maybe less experimenting and more uh, focusing on things that they they know and trust. Absolutely. We do tend to, when anything is uncertain or, or anxiety inducing, tend to retrench into things we, we already know. It kind of, it's, just, it's a human thing to do, I guess. Um, I think just one final point, I wondered if anybody had any comments was on was, um, to your point there, AJ, where people do use cars in Germany, they tend to use the schemes less. I know that Maestro is still quite big. This is something that you have in the Netherlands as well. You, you find that the domestic card schemes are more popular. Um, obviously, N26 is backed by MasterCard. Uh, Vivid um, is now backed by um, by Visa. Do we think that the card schemes are seeing these challenger banks as kind of a way into a market that they, they've maybe struggled to get, not struggled to get a foothold in, but you know, compared to somewhere like the UK, for example, where it's either Visa or MasterCard, you're pretty much it. Um, do you think they're seeing that as kind of like a, a way in? Um, I, I would say absolutely, and and I think there's precedent there as well, where we've seen, um, particularly, I think the UK is a good example of where Mastercard were probably out in front of Visa in terms of embracing and engaging with the fintech followers. I've always felt that Visa missed a little bit of a beat there, and I think actually it really helped Mastercard increase their share of the UK market. So I think definitely with that fresh in their mind, I think yeah, it's a really good point, Sarah. Sanjay, did you want to just add anything to that before we move on? Yeah, absolutely. So if you look in the U.S., right, we don't typically think of Apple as being a challenger bank, but they launched a, they launched a card here in the U.S. and it's it's a metal card. It looks really sexy. It's a platinum white card that's uh, uh, Goldman Sachs and, and Mastercard sponsored, right? So and it's got a lot of attraction within the short time period that uh, it's, it's been launched. So I think tying all these things together and having a sexy something in your wallet that looks really sexy and you can throw on the on the table i think that's really attractive to consumers i will i won't go into my thoughts on metal cards here they are <laughs> they are covered extensively elsewhere and um and particularly which demographics might find them sexy um but that goldman sachs point um is a really good one to move us on to our next story so that's from one challenger bank just starting up to another that's kind of uh, pulling back a little um although huge caveats in that of course um, so saving surge forces Goldman to shut markets to new UK clients. We got this from Reuters. Uh, caveat, anybody who knows uh, much about me knows that um, I like Marcus so much that in fact there is a FinTech Insider podcast episode called My Love Letter to Marcus. Um, so, you know, that I should I should state that up front. I do not own shares. Um, so Goldman Sachs is closing its easy access savings business to new customers in the UK after deposits surged to near regulatory limits. So overall, Marcus has attracted around £21 billion, that's around $27 billion from more than 500,000 savers since its launch uh, in 2018. It's launched in the UK in 2018. Um, but since January, it has attracted £8 billion from about 100,000 new account holders and four billion pounds since the lockdown began in March. So um, that's quite the acceleration. Um, however, British banking rules demanding ring fencing of retail deposits totaling more than 25 billion pounds mean executives have had to take steps to manage growth. Uh, for those who don't know, ring fencing basically would mean that Marcus would have to become a separate legal entity in the UK. And then it has to have its own board. It has its own capital requirements um, and, you know, how much it could share with the rest of Goldman's business. Um, and basically, that doesn't make sense. Uh, so UK MD Des McDade said, Separating Marcus financially and operationally from Goldman Sachs would be a significant change to our low-cost business model, which allows us to pay consistently competitive rates to existing savers. Uh, Marcus does remain open for new accounts in the US. 
So um, for those of you not uh, from the UK, Marcus is consistently the leading interest rate um, in the UK for, for easy access savers. In fact, its interest rates have often beaten um, uh, fixed term accounts. So, you know, rather than locking money away for a year, why do that when you can get a higher interest rate on something you can access anytime you like? Um so it's uh, it's it's it, it's kind of that, that's basically how it's got to where it's got to. And when we saw a lot of other banks um, pulling back their interest rates or cutting their interest rates after central banks took action as a result of of the current uh, pandemic, Marcus did the same. But it was starting from that much of a higher rate um, that it meant you know it was still the best deal on the market, if that makes sense. So um, just a quick uh, I guess overview of, of of UK retail banking landscape there. Um, AJ, I'm going to come to you first because I came to you last last time, and I'm trying to be fair. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, I don't really know what to say. I, I envy those guys uh, for being too successful. It it's is, a nice problem to have, isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It really is. And and I can begin to think what the discussions are inside uh, Marcus and uh, and w- what they're basically, you know, discussing in the in the boardroom. But uh, but but this is really, really a, a nice problem to have. Where, where you know you're you're attracting uh, so much uh, customer demand that uh, that you need to start thinking where to put the money. But uh, I don't really have any advice to give to Marcus. I think I think it's really interesting, and I, this may be a stupid point. Somebody please correct me if I've forgotten or I'm wrong here. But Marcus in the UK doesn't do lending, so I'm never quite sure what they do with all those deposits from UK. Do they get lent out in the US? Is that a thing? Do they do they use them to bolster or as part of Goldman's investment business? Is that perhaps why they're they're so unlikely to to pull the two apart? I really don't know the answer to that, but it's just occurred to me, um, Ross. Yeah, I think there's there's really so many different um, angles that you could sort of, I guess, approach this story from. And I think each one of them is um, as interesting as the last. I, I don't imagine we're going to probably get through a story on the show without um, mentioning COVID. But I do just find it so, so interesting that sort of like the life admin that's going on during lockdown has basically pushed Goldman to the brink of having to to ring fence its its market business in in Great Britain and and you know I, I think you mentioned Sarah four four billion of those twenty one billion pounds in deposits um, have been attracted since since the lockdown began which is an astonishing figure um, and 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 I read somewhere that the four savings of of unspent money is expected to reach fifty seven billion pounds this year. So I'm absolutely fascinated to see how consumer behavior adapts as we start to emerge from lockdown and as we start to to go back to to sort of some semblance of normalcy. And actually, are we going to start to see spending and savings go back to pre-crisis levels? Or are we going to actually see more of a longer term impact from this? So in terms of like, are people going to start squirreling more money away now because they've seen that they have? Um, and and then ultimately, what's the what's the impact on the economy? I think that's just one of the most fascinating angles here. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's, there's a, you know a couple of factors play into it. One is um, you know on the one hand, you've got a lot of people who are who are worse off economically. A lot of people have lost jobs. I know it's nowhere near as many here in the UK as, as in the US, but we have had job losses and we have had a huge amount of people being furloughed, which does mean their incomes have been reduced. Um, so you've got that. You've got those people who probably have less disposable income, but maybe saving has become much more important to them because they have less disposable income. And then on the other hand, you've got people who I would say are very lucky, and I count myself as one of them, that I still have a job. 
Um, you know, I am still being paid, uh, but I'm not spending any money down the pub, as you mentioned earlier, nor am I going on holiday or commuting. So actually, you know, the only place I can spend my money right now is either online or at the supermarket. So I am, I have got more to put aside and I am choosing to save that. And I think, you know, where and um, normal circumstances, finding myself with more disposable income might lead to say, oh, I don't know, a glut in handbags. Um, but current circumstances are leading me to make more sensible decisions about what to do. So I think there's an awful lot of factors really coming together there that I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I'd love someone to unpick. Uh, Sanjay, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think to Ross's point, it's it's intriguing to me, you know, sitting here in the U.S. thinking about people are, are clamoring for one one or to one and a quarter percent interest savings on a, on an account. So, what was the innovation? That, and that's what I'm interested in. The innovation seems like it was, hey, they didn't open any branches. They were able to take all the funding that they would have had to have to open all these branches to go forward and use those kind of savings to to offer that back to the to the consumers. So I think, uh, to me, going back to your earlier question, why aren't challenger banks doing this? Why aren't because they don't have that infrastructure? They don't have this problem, right? They should be able to offer these savings. So I'm surprised that, at least in the UK, there aren't more kind of banks, institutions offering this type of uh, of, of feature, if you will. Uh, Rachel, as somebody who um, is rather probably has a rather uh, good view of the current challenger bank market in the UK, um, did you want to add anything on this? Um, well, just to say, currently, Starling aren't currently offering a savings account, unfortunately. So, um, but I'm, I've noted, I've noted that down. Um, um, no, nothing particular. I think for me, it's just probably a bit more to Ross's point around the, and yours actually, Sarah, around the psychology of what's going on right now. I think not only are people in very specific camps now, and actually we have done quite a lot of insights work with Cantar trying to understand the mood of the nation. And it's so clearly delineated between, to your point, who's still able to function and work, who's furloughed, who's unfortunately lost their job, et cetera, et cetera. But actually also people also have the luxury of more time now. And whilst to your point, Sarah, earlier, even before around traditional banks and people reverting back into their shell a bit, and we're definitely seeing some of that. Actually, we found even just for Starling's point of view, our, the trust levels have gone up and up and up and up for, for us specifically and potentially for other neobanks as well. So actually, I think that people are having time now and they're recognising they need to sort themselves out. And there's never been a better time in their life to actually go, I need to look at what other options are available to me, savings accounts, current accounts, whatever. So actually, now, if as long as you're positioned well and you offer great products, actually, uh, people have more time on their hands and they are more willing to, to try new things, actually. Um, that's certainly been our experience. Yeah, I mean, just that was to Ross's point, I guess, you know, life admin, you have time to do life admin. Um, just, uh, Ross, did you want to, to give us a final point on that? And then we'll take a break. I think I think the life admin point. Um, is a really good one. I also agree that people are not only organizing the finances, but actually are actively seeking out the best deals. Just one thing that I wanted to actually pick up on Sanjay's point. Um, I think um, Marcus definitely benefits from not having, say, the the branch network and all of these sort of high cost bricks and mortar stores. I think equally they benefit from the economies from the larger Goldman business um, processes, etc. And I think um, this is the real issue. Obviously, if they're forced to ring fence and then spin out as a separate legal entity, actually it introduces a huge amount of operational cost, in particular, um, into the business model. And I think that then has a knock-on impact in terms of the rates that they're able to offer so they sort of lose their edge so i can understand absolutely why they're so reluctant to do that and are just sort of they're in a holding pattern now like the rest of the world right they're just sort of waiting for things to play out a little bit so that they can sort of decide on next steps 
And also, we can't forget that one of the reasons Goldman can offer interest rates like this is because they have a huge bank behind them. So they can draw from those other areas of the bank to, 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 to pay down on those interest rates, even if they're not issuing loans here. Um, at that point, though, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. And in the meantime, we're going to tell you about our sponsors. We are truly in uncharted waters. Looking to us for guidance. Nothing is more important than building trust right now. This will be the new normal. How can I help? Hear that? That's the sound of change. Right now, business leaders are rethinking, reassessing, and repurposing business as usual to deal with this new crisis. It's a global conversation Salesforce is having called Leading Through Change. And it's all about businesses working together to achieve one simple goal, help. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Learn more at salesforce.com backslash leading through change. This podcast is brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest global platform of interconnected data centers, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of over 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinex.co.uk. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. That's M-I-T-E-K systems.com. Okay, now back to the news, where we're going to take a look at some other stories happening around the world this week. Uh, we're going to start with Islamic finance startup Wahid closes $25 million funding round to grow its Saudi Arabia hub. Uh, we took this story from TechCrunch. Um, Wahid describes itself as a digital Islamic investment platform and as the world's first halal robo-advisor. The recent uh, investment round um, has been closed and the funds will be used to expand internationally, particularly uh, within the company's regional hub in Saudi Arabia, uh, where it already hasn't licensed to operate. Um, it's also aiming to get regulatory approval in a further 20 countries. Uh, it already has approval in both the US and the UK. Um, and across those markets, it has more than 100,000 clients. Um, ethical investment, uh, Islamic finance, uh, they're both growing in popularity actually all around the world. Um, but, you know, obviously, especially in, in Muslim countries, uh, digital versions of, of Islamic products, I should say, obviously, in Muslim countries, Islamic finance is very popular. Um, these digital versions are starting to gain traction. Um, so to find out more, we spoke to Kareem Tabar, Chief Product Officer at Wahid. Wahid is an online investment platform that helps people invest in line with Islamic guidelines and ethics, which are similar to socially responsible investing principles. The story of Wahid actually first started in a cab ride in New York City after the cab driver was asking our founder, Junaid Wahidna, to help him invest his family's savings in a way that's in line with his faith. We just closed a $25 million fundraising round anchored by Saudi Aramco's Entrepreneurship Ventures Unit, which will primarily help us in launching and localizing our product in key markets. We have recently received initial approval from the Capital Markets Authority in Saudi Arabia and are working with other regulators globally to establish local operations. We built a robust platform that provides a similar investment offering across different countries, while also having customizable services that can be adjusted for each specific market to ensure that the user experience is always super localized. After launching in the U.S. in 2017, 
we started expanding towards the east. We've seen tremendous growth in markets with a large Muslim demographic, and we've been growing week over week, even in these challenging environments. Our mission is to provide underserved investors with an efficient and ethical investment platform. This new capital will help us accelerate this mission as we look to launch in several countries around the world. So um, it's really interesting. Obviously, this company has been around for a while. Um, they've been they've been around since two thousand and fifteen. And actually, I've I've spoken to uh, to them before, and 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 it's really interesting to see that they're actually really starting to gain traction now. But particularly, um, you know, I think when they first launched, they looked at the UK and the US and thought these are these are places where um, there is huge demand for for Islamic financial products, but perhaps that demand is not being met by by the providers in those markets. Um, and it's really interesting to me to see them moving from those kind of markets. Two markets like Saudi Arabia, where obviously there are there is a choice of Islamic finance products. It's not, um, you know, they're not the only player in the market, or they don't have, have quite such a niche proposition, I suppose. Um, but Ross, I know you've done some work in these markets, so I don't know if there's there's you know you have a, a, a sort of a bird's eye view on this, or kind of I guess a locals perspective, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been um, quite lucky in that um, I've been working with an awesome partner. For the last while in um, in Saudi Arabia, building uh, digital propositions, it's it's a fascinating market, and I think Sarah, your 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 point is exactly right that these guys have been around for a while. I think what the difference probably is again comes back to that point around timing. So I think the whole concept around ethical finance, I think ethical finance is going to continue to grow as people continue to become more socially aware. Um, something that we're seeing and um, ethical principles, I think basically are at the heart of Islamic finance. So it's kind of on trend now. Um, and I think there's also a number of wealthy Middle Eastern countries that are looking internationally, so like Saudi Arabia, for good value investments in the wake of um, COVID-19. There it is again. It's come up on this story as well. So, so far we're three for three, um, as they did in the in the crash in 2008. Um, so that's both through the, the public investment fund, but equally... Um, through the the Saudi Aramco IPO, where they floated 1.5% of the shares of Saudi Aramco um, at a valuation of $1.7 trillion. So that's made it comfortably the world's most valuable publicly traded company. Um, they're cash rich, so they're, they're looking for um, those investments internationally. What I think is interesting and where the contrast probably is to their strategy post the crash 2008 is that they're actually now harboring ambitions of sort of developing the subsidiary within the kingdom itself. So it's not just pumping money into um, international startups. And, and actually, Wahid already has a license to operate, which for the Saudi market, I think, is um, is fascinating. We're seeing a number of, of sort of key shifts within the kingdom, I think, that are um, driving this sudden uptick in, in fintech and in disruption in the financial services sector in particular. I think consumer expectations are, are shifting quite radically now. They're being shaped by external influences, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, and starting to expect those from their financial services providers. I think regulatory appetite is shifting. There's more of an agenda now to drive disruption in financial services. And I think there's a top-down, um, there's lots of top-down initiatives at a government level to try and modernize the Saudi economy and move away from the dependence on oil and gas. So I actually think that as a proposition, um, it is localized. It does solve a real need for consumers and it plays nicely within those sort of 
dynamics that are driving those trends. And I think they're quite well set up to succeed within Saudi and, and, and probably um, probably more broadly as well. Thank you. It's, it's really great to get an opinion from somebody who's actually got experience in that market, because whilst I have some experience of working with Islamic financial services companies, it's, it's in this market. So um, it's obviously very different uh, when, you're, when you're on the ground. Um, do, does anybody else have anything they'd like to add to this? Sanjay? First of all, I just find the story really fascinating. I didn't know about this until you guys just mentioned it, but just thinking about this, you know, the, the founder sitting in the cab ride coming up with this idea is just fascinating. And if you look at the world, right, if you look at Latin America, only 50% of the population there is actually banked. So they don't have a service or product that's tuned to their needs, you know. And so I know a couple of years ago, I was looking at uh, talking to a couple of companies at, uh, at a conference and they were given in those regions, hyperinflation is really high, right? So they were building a product that you could convert the local currency to euros in the cloud, right, in the cloud, and then send it back when the person wanted to use it, convert it back to local currency a month later. So I think this is just a fascinating thing where it's, it's product fit for market. And that's what's really intriguing to me about the story. So. I think that's really interesting as well because it's product fit for market, but they started in the West and then shifted yeah. to have a look and see where else was a better fit. Um, AJ, did you want to close us out on this one? Yeah, I, I think that this this kind of what we call contextual banking, taking a, a particular segment, although this segment being very large, of course, uh, and uh, and building something uh, purposely for them is, is is an interesting bit. And I absolutely know nothing about Islamic finance, so I, I can't even uh, you know think of, of what are all of the different uh, intricacies. But what what's really interesting is that context is local. What we've learned in in our micro business banking is that context is always very local, and it'd be interesting to understand how you take the Western sort of uh, investment products and, and, and you localize them in Saudi Arabia. And what does that actually mean? Being a sort of a new business product guy, uh, you know, it's always fascinating taking something to a, a, well, I should say probably not completely, but quite different market from, uh, from, from where they've uh, started the product. So yeah, That's I mean, certainly, particularly when you're looking at investments, one of the, the, the few things I do know about Islamic finance is, is the rules around what interest you can you can make and rules around kind of what well, you can't make interest, actually. That's, that's not allowed um, under under Islamic ocean industry rules um, and various things about, you know, what you can invest in, you know, to make it halal, which investments can go where, um, you know you know, investing itself, you're not allowed to gamble. So what does that look like if you're looking at it to us in the West, a lot of investing looks a lot like gambling. Um, but how do you present that in such a way that it, that it still complies with, with Sharia law? Uh, Ross, you're waving at me furiously. So I'm going to give you a minute to give me your final point. Yeah, no, I just really loved AJ's point um, about localization. And this is something that comes up time and time again in the region. Um, people often think of Dubai or the UAE when they think of the Middle East, but actually you can't just lift and shift what worked in Dubai and drop it into Saudi Arabia, for example, because there's already, despite the fact that it's quite um, early on in the fintech disruption space in Saudi, there's already a good number of examples of where they've tried to do that and failed. So Meme being lifted and shifted in there by Gulf International Bank, Live being lifted and shifted in there by Emirates MBD. Um, from a propositional point i think they're getting at control i think saudis have tended to be very passive in managing their finances they're now emerging from that they want to take control and i think something like a digital islamic investment platform will allow them to do that and that's why i think it's going to land 
Yeah, absolutely. Never underestimate local differences. And <clears throat> <N26>. 26. <clears throat> uh, right, on to our next story. Um, this is that Onfido, Deloitte and Evanim, I'm hoping I'm saying that right, it's phonetic, Evanim, uh, proved that reusable digital identity is market ready with the FCA sandbox. Uh, so we actually got this from Onfido. Um, so the three parties have confirmed their reusable digital identity solution has been proven with market participants. Um, the idea of this is that it's a portable identity that enables people to safely and securely reuse one verified identity across financial services and indeed other organizations so that they don't need to be re-verified every time they want to access a new service. Um, so basically the idea is that you're digit- digitalizing, not digitizing, digitalizing something that already exists in the physical world, which is which is literally an ID. So um, in, in the UK, that would be a drive license or a passport um, and other countries have, have you know national ID systems and things um, such a system means businesses no longer have to choose between security and customer experience they can reduce compliance costs and are able to respond quickly to changing regulation now the way that Onfido describes this is that uh, credential providers are able to verify any relevant information about an individual or organization and issue digitally verifiable credentials to that person people uh, hold multiple digital credentials on their phone and accept or reject requests to share in that information with institutions. So basically, do you want this this institution to have access to your identity? Do you want them to know who you are? Um, so they can accept or reject requests to share information with institutions, which are called relying parties by Onfido. Their relying parties request information from the consumer and receive digital credentials. Uh, so we heard from uh, Hussein Kasai, CEO of Onfido, to tell us more. At Onfido, we presented our vision of the future of portable identity and KYC to the fintech delivery panel, which included the majority of the mainstream banks. We received their endorsement in 2018 to prove how a portable identity ecosystem could work within the FCA regulatory sandbox. And along with our partners, Deloitte and Evernim, we successfully ran the pilot over the past year as part of cohort five. This is a preview of the future of account creation with users being able to sign up in seconds with just a few clicks to a whole range of different accounts and services. Participants in the pilots included Cedars, Moniz, and Social Bank Crew. So um, it's really interesting because this might seem like quite a new idea, particularly to listeners in the UK, but it, it has been around a while. And in fact, in the UK, I believe that Barclays had a go at doing this. We also have the government gateway um, system, which was designed to give you a government ID that you could reuse across various organizations. Um, as I said to somebody the other day, I actually have four government gateway IDs in the UK because every time you forget your password, they give you a new one. So my identity is linked to four different government IDs, which is in no way terrifying. Um, but also, of course, you've got in the Nordics that they're, they're, they're quite uh, used to the idea of having an EID, um, which I, 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 I'm sure that AJ knows a lot more about that than I do. Um, but it's, it is, it's widely understood and everybody has one. And they kind of think, I imagine in those markets, they might say, why on earth do we need this? Um, AJ, do you want to jump jump in first on that one? Well, actually, the um, the question I had for for this uh, bit of news is that is this something? Did I understand it correctly that it's something that we we have in Finland with bank credentials? Because typically, what people do is, of course, everybody's got a bank account, and uh, and when they have a bank account, they have their their bank ID, and uh, and that bank ID is used for for logging into everything, all of the insurance companies, all of the government agencies, everybody allows you to use your bank ID. On top of that, the government has then uh, uh, their own scheme, but uh, but it's really 
about the uh, uh, it, it's really about using your bank credentials for uh, for uh, signing up and uh, and what I thought that this had more was that you actually hold the credentials on your device or on your phone uh, and uh, you don't go to a, a sort of a third party like a bank but I, I'm not sure whether I got it right maybe somebody else can uh, can explain yeah Ross did you want to add to that yeah so that's right so um users actually would store the credentials on their device and then they would accept or reject requests to access those credentials by providers so if they were trying to sign up to a new service for example they could just accept the request issue the credential and then that verification has already been done by a provider or an issuer so there's no need to go through that um process again so i i really like this um it sounds to me like a bit of a game changer it sounds to me like it's something that's actually truly digital rather than the the sort of broken system that we have today whereby the average person currently manages 191 pairs of usernames and passwords i think that's so obviously broken it's impossible to manage for people so they end up using the same password for multiple accounts which is obviously insecure and then i think places a burden on the provider which then increases kyc and compliance cost um so this feels like a bit of a win 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 both for i think the consumer for the provider um and for the regulator anybody else want to comment on this rachel yeah just to say 191 i don't have 191 birthdays or children so i'm obviously quite scuppered in my password so um just to clear i do not use my birthday or my children um <laughs> I think the only thing for me with this, it's a few things come to mind. I, I admit I'm not close enough actually to on FIDO, but is first off having worked uh, within the insurance sort of sector, broadly speaking, and obviously banking now, not not necessarily industries known for their tech, tech uh, infrastructure and being able to roll this out seamlessly. And a bit to your point earlier, Sarah, with the government gateway, if it's not implemented well, the customers, you know, it's not it's not going to be as beneficial, and customers aren't going to use it. Also, I still think we probably in this conversation perhaps miss um, representing just how cynical consumers are and the, the low level of trust. Um, I, um, you know, as a digital marketer at heart, specifically, uh, this sounds like absolute heaven to me after all the changes Google made, etc. However, I just think consumer trust can take quite a while and it has to be so slick and so seamless. And I guess I'm a little bit cynical, if I'm honest, about how those two will marry up. I think um, to your point there, one of the, the conversations I've had with people previously um, is, again, and to, to sorry to call back the conversation we were just having about Wahid, uh, is that... Um, Local differences are huge. And in the UK, we really, really don't like the idea of having a centralised digital ID. In fact, when they tried to introduce identity cards here, like they have across a lot of Europe, and you can travel across a lot of Europe without a passport, you just use an ID card. The British public went, -uh, no way, not a hope in hell. So um, we, we don't really trust um, our government, particularly with it comes to ID, particularly with tech and ID, which may be down to, to being burnt, perhaps, on several previous occasions. Um, AJ, I'm going to let you close this one out. Okay. Um, I, I do think that, that uh, it's, it's really important to have something like this in, in this multi-provider uh, multi world that we're going into. A lot of the, the customer experience, a lot of the user experience uh, will be divided between different providers. And if you need to authenticate between all of those different providers with different means, I think it's, it's just going to be uh, hell for customers. And, uh, and uh, it's, 
I think the the bank ID is is kind of a, in in the Nordics is showing that if it is convenient and if you get used to it, you kind of use it as an afterthought everywhere where you you, you need to log in. So so in that sense, I think something like this will will need to happen going forward. Yeah, something will have to stop us trying to remember 191 different passwords. We just don't know if it's this yet. All right, um, I'm going to take us on to the next story, which is that MasterCard, Access Bank and Worldline have unveiled a new payment solution in India. Um, we took this from Verdict. Um, so MasterCard has partnered with Access Bank and payment service provider Worldline to launch a digital point of sale app for SMBs in India. The new solution called SoftPos turns smartphones into POS terminals and complements the present need for contactless payments amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so SoftPos is powered by Indian integrated payment system Baharat QR, again, apologies for pronunciation, um, and NFC uh, for tap on phone payments, as well as link-based remote payments for online orders. So to make purchases, cardholders can tap their contactless cards on the merchant's NFC-enabled smartphone or pay remotely whilst ordering online via the Acquiring Banks app. Um, that sounds a little bit complicated. Um, the app also acts as a cash register for merchants to keep a record of all their expenses. Um, so it's really interesting to see kind of uh, India is one of those hotbeds of um, of innovation uh, where you see things sort of emerging that pop up to meet specific needs in the Indian market that you hadn't really thought about in the UK because we don't really need it. But in India, you know, there's there's so much um, perhaps uh, differing infrastructure that's already in place that, that people are finding solutions that meet the, the technology and the infrastructure that does exist. So, you know, we're not going to bother with um, the likes of iZettle because how are we going to get these little plastic uh, boxes to all those hundreds and probably millions of, of small businesses in, in India, but nearly everybody has some kind of smartphone. So how do we use what we've got um, to, to enable people to, 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 to take payments? Um, and this is a trend I think we're seeing across the world is enabling small merchants who are often just individual sellers um, to, to, to take electronic payments even before COVID. Um, who wants to go first on this one? Sanjay, please. Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, if you look at what, what's happened in India starting in 2016 when they demonetized, kind of um, took the 100, 100 rupees and the 500 rupees out of circulation and they forced individuals to come to the bank because there was a whole shadow economy that was running but they forced these individuals to come to the bank and, and open up bank accounts. So this has been kind of ongoing since that time period. And it, there's a big company that started during that time period called Paytm. And uh, you guys may know, Paytm just raised over a billion dollars just last year. And they're really providing merchants and consumers to transact seamlessly through their phone where you can access the accounts directly. And then I think last year, they just, they just also tied in with Citibank. Uh, to offer uh, a card service as well. So I think that this is, you know, in India, it's, it's like you said, it's just a hotbed for technologies in any country that allow their, their people to adopt technology, you're going to see a growth in GDP. So I think this is just a natural extension of, of where they've been migrating over the years. So, Ross, did you have a follow-up point on that? Yeah, I, I, I actually think um, Sanjay's point about the, the shadow economy is a, a particularly interesting one. Um, in, a, in a previous life, I did some work back home in Ireland looking at share of wallet. Um, this is probably a good five or six years ago. Um, and how basically debit and credit, so payment cards, could um, start to take a chunk of, of what was at the time still a very um, – 
a country still very much dominated by cash. And I remember talking to a taxi driver at the time and just out of curiosity, just, just asking him, you know, why he didn't take card. And he said, well, to be perfectly honest, um, I declare what I declare. I don't declare what I don't declare. And what I don't declare is my beer money. Right. And it's um, <laughs> what, what's, what's fascinating actually is to watch how that's changed in the, the sort of four or five years since, because actually, um, payment cards as a as a share of wallet has has gone through the roof in Ireland so of course I think that that shadow economy will have will have fallen away I guess this is I think a great initiative Sarah exactly to your point in in, in India that solves an immediate and very pressing need I think there's a huge amount of um, investment in infrastructure that's required to sort of I guess seize on this opportunity and have it more of like a longer term impact rather than just the um, the immediate term that, that we're seeing now. I just want to say, you say that, but last time I was in Dublin, which was not that long ago, I couldn't find a single taxi driver who took card payments. Apparently all their card machines were broken. It must have just been the weekend I was there. I don't know. The internet <laughs> must have gone down across the entirety of Dublin. It's been known to happen. <laughs> um, AJ? Yeah, I used to do some work in India uh, when I was with Nokia. We, had a, we ran a, a, an internal venture in India. India used to be the, the country that Nokia was really dominating in the beginning of uh, 2010 and, uh, and, and those times. And uh, one of the things that I learned working with the small merchants in India was that, uh, that, that they, similarly to what Ross just said, they, they kind of, they had multiple different businesses and they would be reporting part of the Part of the uh, the uh, revenue in, through through different businesses just to avoid some uh, some uh, government regulations, and uh, when I read the story about this and uh, and it said that the the bank would have a full history record of all of the transactions of the merchant, it kind of felt to me like I'm not sure whether the small merchants would like anybody to have a full record of, uh, of uh, all of the business and all of the transactions, even if they could get uh, better terms on a loan. Um, but I think this is, this is still something that, uh, that will help uh, the, the small merchant if they don't have to go and get the, the little piece of plastic, as you said. But then again, it's about the acceptance. It's about how many customers will be using the NFC or the, the other difficult word that you, that, that you mentioned, the QR code. Um, and uh, if there isn't enough people, if there isn't enough foot traffic into the into the store, using uh, being able to use this kind of a soft BOS, uh, then then I guess that the merchant will not will not use it, will not adopt it. But I yeah. really like the Kirana store credit app that they mentioned in the story as well. The the way that uh, that Indian households uh, buy groceries from the local store and how how this app supports that. I thought that was a great example. Of localization, so that that story is um, we took that from Verdict, by the way. So if you want to go and find more examples, uh, sorry, more detail on that example, then then that's where you can find that. Um, Rachel, did you want to close us out? You, you started us, so do you want to finish us on this section? Um, candidly, I don't have a strong um, understanding of the market necessarily, and probably not as informed as certainly the people that have spoken before me. So not necessarily. I think um, what I would say, I think, is that I 
from a consumer perspective or from a, some, someone managing business accounts, certainly within Starling, it's fascinating. I think it's a really interesting uh, proposition, actually. And I think to, with my lack of knowledge of Indian business, small businesses, I think it sounds like a great way to leapfrog and, like you say, localise using technology that's there, understanding the market and developing something that's fit for purpose. So, um that's my only comment, to be honest. I think, um, I, th- I think to, to your point there as well, from a, from a consumer perspective um, and from the business's perspective, the next step on this to me is um, allowing people overseas to purchase from small merchants using online payments. So we recently saw um, a, a scheme come out or an initiative, sorry, come out in uh, certain parts of Africa, which I think Visa had powered and it enabled um, small businesses and, 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 you know, indeed sole traders in parts of Africa to sell basically online anywhere um and i think i think you know that would be the next step here because it does open up those those merchants to to, to huge markets and enable them to expand their businesses um but that's probably probably a way away here on this one um right okay well we're going to move on now as we're getting to the end of the show uh, just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover uh, there's an awful lot happened this week actually we, but we couldn't cover it all um, but we decided these stories deserved a shout out. Uh, so, Ross, you're up first. Absolutely. Um, so, big banks get into politics as HSBC back China's HK security laws. So, this story was brought to our attention just after we stopped recording last week's show. You could be for- forgiven for being slightly cynical of the timing of this announcement as the headlines of the day were dominated by news of the US. This rather slipped past largely unnoticed. So HSBC has usually stayed politically neutral in the affairs of both China and Hong Kong, as they have strongholds in both Hong Kong, Shanghai, and also the UK. But this week, it has signed a petition backing China as it tries to enforce new security laws on Hong Kong. Beijing had agreed to keep Hong Kong largely autonomous for 50 years when Britain handed it back in 1997, but the new laws changed this stance. And this puts HSBC at odds with Britain, where it's regulated, and the US and other countries that say the law violates Hong Kong's autonomy. So that's that one, Sarah. Hmm. Is what I have to say about that. (laughs) Um, Next up is that TransferWise makes instant P2P available in 50 currencies. So TransferWise has launched a service that allows customers to conduct domestic and international remittances instantly to mobile phone contacts that also have a TransferWise multi-currency account across more than 50 different currencies. The service eliminates the need to have the bank account details in order to complete the transfer. Um, according to TransferWise product manager Lars Trunin, this new feature has been around on a national level but it now addresses the international money problem head-on and makes managing money across borders more convenient for everyone without any need for a bank. Somebody who has a sister in New Zealand, I'm very pleased with that one. Yeah, I think that's an awesome story um, and something that I think people have been crying out for. Um, Our next story, so the OBIE launch an open banking app store. So the UK's open banking implementation entity, of course, affectionately known as the OBIE, has opened an app store to help consumers and companies navigate through the maze of peripheral financial products available to supplement their online bank accounts. Through the store, individuals and business owners can compare products and services across a range of categories, including budgeting, accountancy and tax, payments, borrowing, debt advice, financial safeguarding, and more. 
Earlier this year, the OBIE shared figures showing that customer use of open banking in the UK had surpassed the 1 million customer mark for the first time, and that's doubled in the past six months. Currently, there are 204 regulated providers, up from 100 at the end of 2018, who are fielding approximately 200 million monthly calls on bank account data. So those numbers there are pretty interesting, aren't they? I think maybe open banking has been more successful than people uh, would think at first thought. Well, if you'd like more analysis of that, you can go and find our open finance report, which we just published with Plaid. Um, The next story is that CaixaBank is going to roll out facial recognition ATMs across Spain. So CaixaBank is embarking on a project to roll out facial recognition technology at 100 ATMs throughout Spain, enabling users to make withdrawals without using a pin. Upon completion of the expansion, forecast for mid-July 2020, CaixaBank says it will have one of the world's biggest networks of ATMs fitted with commercially adopted facial recognition technology and the only one in which this biometric system has a sufficient level of security to enable users to make withdrawals without having to enter a PIN. They would say that. Um, The ATM has the hardware and software needed to validate up to 16,000 points on the image of a user's face, apparently guaranteeing secure identification. So our and finally story this week uh, will be honest is it included mostly because it has a great headline. And that headline is holidaymakers need to think like futures traders. So basically, the idea behind this story is that COVID-19 is converting would-be tourists into financial speculators. So if you book tickets now for the airlines, it is a no-interest unsecured loan. For customers, meanwhile, it is an option on the possibility that they might visit the Algarve, or maybe not. So in short, using market jargon, is there a real chance that if you buy tickets now, your holiday option will be in the money come August? So basically, airlines are offering vouchers and credit in place of actual refunds. That's being done to keep themselves afloat. Um, And that's forcing holidaymakers to treat vouchers as more of an investment in a future holiday. So it's basically you're you're gambling on the idea you might be able to go away. Um, I don't really know whether I want to get into the politics of what airlines are and aren't doing uh, for customers at the moment. Um, I suppose there is one one uh, line we could take, which is, do we think that this will teach people more about the principles of investing and options if they're starting to see more uh, more in real life become, you know, uh, I suppose, riskier? Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's maybe being, being too off the wall. Rachel, please jump in. Um, so I have a personal point of view. So I am one of those affected by this. Um, I had... Um, couple of holidays booked, one back in April, clearly was never going to happen, and one coming up to the Algarve, in fact, um, in August. So keeping everything crossed at the moment, who knows? Um, both with low-cost airlines, which I shall not name, um, I found this fascinating on a very personal level. So I, I feel fortunate. So we, we were offered first a refund, and then, like many people, I think they suddenly got a, say, here's your voucher. We went, oh, wait a minute, that's not what I thought. I was fetching my money back. Thanks very much. And there's like a little tiny, tiny little link at the bottom. If you really, really, really want your money back, you know, you can click here and, and wait for about two hours on live chat. Anyway, um, I'm candidly, I know you're not necessarily serious. I don't think at the moment people are going to think anything different. I think that for many people fortunate enough to go on holiday, it is something you so look forward to and you so plan, you know, many people don't get a good holiday year. And if they do, it's, you know, it's their only time to relax. I think it's causing so much more stress right now than anything. 
for people to actually start thinking about, uh, you know, finances, etc. Um, I think they just want to get away. And especially after the last few months, more and more people are able to, are so desperate to, to keep hold of that, that summer holiday. So I'm not sure it will change consumer um, behaviour in the short term. Perhaps if it continues, we'll, we'll see. I hope not, though. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm in a similar boat. I had I had one holiday booked and the airline, very similar to you, if you went online, there was no option for a refund. But if you rang them, if you waited about 15 minutes, you got through and they were like, yeah, no worries, here's the money back. And 24 hours later, it was in my account. Another airline, well, I don't know, they said that it would take them 120 days to process the request for the refund. And I was like, well, that's, that's definitely illegal under EU law. Um, but, you know, we won't get into that. Ross, did you have a point you wanted to make? Or have you got a similar story? We could just call this group therapy at this point. Yeah, <laughs> I, I absolutely do have um, have a similar story. And I think actually, um, similarly to, to you, Sarah, I think I've had some positive experiences and, and some negative experiences, but I think you've summed it up really well. I think the fact that this is a story in the news is just the clearest indication of, of sort of where we're at with COVID and the things that we used to to take for granted. Um, but um, I, I, I do think there's something in the, the speculative element of this. So consumers who are sort of using the uncertainty that we're all experiencing at the moment almost to their advantage. So sort of booking like, you know, bargain bucket, holidays abroad not knowing 100% whether or not that's going to pay off but actually if it does pay off then you could get a, a, a great holiday for the fraction of um, of what you would normally pay if, if there wasn't all of this uncertainty so I actually think if people are doing this then more power to them. It's risk appetite right it's, it's teaching yeah, exactly. people about risk appetite. Um, Sanjay or AJ do you have an international perspective on this because we're I think we're all UK based so we probably have a very UK centric perspective. Uh, Sanjay you, you raised your hand there. Yeah, I think locally, what we've seen, let's say, in restaurants and bars here, that uh, they're they're offering vouchers, right? They're offering, hey, pay us now, and then you can come in later and, and and have a meal a month or six weeks or et cetera from now. What 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 I've actually found is that I've been able to find really good bargains on wine. So they're holding, you know, inventory of wine, and I see you're drinking wine today, <laughs> <laughs> and and being able to say, okay, look, I'll take off a case of wine off of you, and I'm still getting a better rate, and they're making money as well. So I was thinking for you guys, this should be like you know futures and uh, futures and, and and pub kegs, right? So people should be able to buy futures, saying, does uh, I want a quarter of a keg that's reserved for me, kind of, and I can come and drink it whenever I want. So I think that could be a good business opportunity. You. You're not far off a model, but my local has actually emailed me about today. So first of all, completely agree. The pubs in the UK are selling off inventory um, at, at kind of like retail price rather than drink in price. But the pub near me has launched this scheme in partnership with a large, actually American beer brand. And if I were to buy a £20 voucher for said pub, then large American beer brand would match it with £20. And so the pub would get £40 worth sitting in its pocket. And I thought this was blinking brilliant. The problem is, of course, you don't know if the pub will survive all of this. But um, as somebody who holds pubs dear to her heart, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to make the investment. Um, AJ, did you did you want to, to add any, anything else to that? Or shall we, shall we call it a day? I don't want to talk about cancelled holidays. It hurts too much. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. We'll continue the group therapy after the show's finished. Um, and with that, I'm going to wrap up this week's new show. So thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you, AJ? Uh, well, 
from the company website holby.com or or if you if you're interested in my thoughts uh my personal twitter account is a underscore j i i perfect thank you so much rachel how about you yeah, similarly. So obviously, Starling Bank is starlingbank.com. Uh, myself, good old fashioned LinkedIn is probably the best way. So just uh, look me up on LinkedIn. Wonderful. And Sanjay, how about you? You can always find me on LinkedIn and also at my company website, mytechsystems.com. Wonderful. And Ross, how about you? Yep, as always, uh, at Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech and who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, please pass the podcast along and do tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast11fs.com. Thank you so much. Goodbye.